Hi, welcome to the Dewey Decimal Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association. Thanks for joining us. We have a, an important episode lined up this month. Uh, but before we begin, I'd like to welcome all of the new listeners to the program. Last month's episode, and that was our one-year anniversary episode, if you remember, uh, that was our most listened to episode to date, which is awesome. So thank you, new and veteran Dewey Decibel listeners. We're glad you're with us. Now, on to the show. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue. But upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. That's the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. It lays out the expectation of privacy that we all possess here in the U.S., in theory at least. And as many of us know and sometimes see firsthand, this expectation is tested all too often. Instances of law enforcement, the government, businesses, or organizations with nefarious purposes reaching too far into our computers, our cars, our homes, our physical persons, our lives. It's all too common. It's a struggle to maintain that right of privacy outlined in the fourth. And it's a right that's mutable, depending upon who's in power at a given time. I think President Trump's recent repeal of uh, internet privacy laws passed by the FCC in 2016 can attest to that. So how does privacy and the struggle to maintain that right impact the library world? Our guest today will speak to just that. Today on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, I talk to Deborah Caldwell-Stone, the Deputy Director of the ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom and the Freedom to Read Foundation. Deborah and I discuss libraries and librarians' place in the privacy conversation and what ALA does to help libraries and privacy concerns. Next, I talked to Jim Neal. He's a university librarian emeritus at Columbia University and the president-elect of the American Library Association. Jim is a privacy expert, especially on the right to be forgotten. It's a measure enacted by some countries that forces search engines to remove certain web pages from their listings. We talk about that measure and how it affects intellectual freedom. And finally, Dewey Decimal contributor Ann Ford talks to Allison Macrina from the Library Freedom Project. That's a partnership amongst librarians, technologists, attorneys, and privacy advocates that teaches librarians about surveillance threats, privacy rights, responsibilities, and digital tools to stop surveillance. But first, a word from a sponsor. How can you transform library data into impactful services? What feature do users value the most when evaluating information sources? Which were the most popular interlibrary loan titles for the last five years? What does S.R. Ranganathan, the father of modern library science, have to say about shyness? All of these questions have been explored on the OCLC Next blog. So many libraries operate on behalf of a very local, specific audience. Whether you're at a public library serving one city or town, or an academic library taking care of your students and faculty, you best understand your users' needs. But that can be a challenge when it comes to synthesizing trends among libraries of different types, sizes, and countries. That's where OCLC Next comes in. Because of OCLC's global reach, staff and member leaders from many disciplines are exposed to developments and ideas that reach across the entire library environment. They wrap their thoughts into quick, compact posts in order to share knowledge from the world's libraries with you. Check out oc.lc next to read the latest post or subscribe to a weekly email. Deborah Caldwell-Stone is the Deputy Director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom and the Freedom to Read Foundation. She's on the front lines of the association's efforts to ensure that libraries and library patrons' intellectual freedom and privacy rights are protected. I sat down with Deborah at ALA's Chicago headquarters to discuss how privacy issues affect libraries today. And we're here with Deborah Caldwell-Stone, uh, the Deputy Director of the Office for Intellectual Freedom at, at ALA. Deborah, thanks for coming to Dewey Decibel today. Oh, well, thanks for having me in, Phil. I really appreciate it. And uh, today uh, we're talking about privacy and specifically libraries and privacy. Now, just this kind of a broad question, but why is privacy such a concern for libraries? Well, privacy is seen as an essential condition for enabling the right to read freely. 
Um, without the right to read freely, people are fearful that they might be monitored by the government, um, that their neighbors might find out that they have odd tastes in reading. Um, and so libraries and librarians work very hard to preserve the conditions that enable everyone to read without fear that someone's looking over their shoulder. Um, really, we protect the right to read anonymously. Um, and it's all tied up with the right to ensure that people can make their own choices, that they're able to make up their own opinions without outside pressure so that they can function as citizens in a democratic society. Now, what would drive an institution, be it government, a outside agency, um, anything, uh, to infringe upon the privacy of library patrons? Well, quite simply, um, reading is seen as evidence of bad thinking, um, evidence of bad intent. Uh, for example, um, there were the Tylenol murders in the Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. and they sought the reading records of the person who was accused of those murders to discover if they, the person had uh, access to information about chemistry and poisons. Um, uh, other times, it's uh, being part of the wrong political party, the wrong religion. Um, and so uh, governments and people in power have always sought to monitor what people read. Um, back in the day, it was Sam Irvin who said that you know official surveillance of somebody's reading habits is the, the mark of true sign of a tyranny. And, and so, um, you know, it's always been that way that uh, governments have wanted to know what people were thinking, and they used their reading records as a means of determining that. Now, what can a library do to help ensure its patrons' privacy? What, uh, mm -hmm. what measures are, are, are open and out there for libraries? Yeah, really it comes down to devising policies and procedures that affirm the right to privacy and address current privacy risks in libraries. Um, that's fostering a whole ethic uh, of privacy and confidentiality protection among library staff and volunteers as well who work in the library and in the larger world promoting privacy as a positive value and personal choice. Now I, what uh, resources does ALA and the Office for Intellectual Freedom offer for libraries um, in privacy matters? I know we have Choose Privacy Week, uh, which is uh, yeah. every every May, and there are some toolkits. Um, can you elaborate on that a little yeah, bit? Sure. Well, Choose Privacy Week is a broader public awareness program that can be compared to Banned Books Week. It's an opportunity. Uh, for libraries to raise the awareness of the need for privacy rights, both in the library and in the wider world. Um, and so we provide uh, resources to libraries um, and also do our own promotion uh, to help libraries uh, engage with their communities on privacy issues. But for libraries themselves, um, ALA has a long history of developing both privacy policies and best practices. Um, it's all of, uh, over a long time of uh, uh, Library Bill of Rights interpretations, uh, confidentiality policies and procedures, um, the Code of Ethics, um, uh, and then more specific tools like the Privacy Toolkit and the more recent privacy guidelines and checklists that are meant to address more contemporary issues around tech, the use of technology and the provision of services by third-party vendors in libraries. Now, um, privacy, it's, it's in the news all the time. It's I mean, mm -hmm. something that affects our lives mm -hmm. daily, so it's, you know, it's, it's ubiquitous. And I think that particularly, um, as I mentioned in our introduction to the episode, um, we have you know President Trump's repeal of internet privacy rules that were passed last year by the FCC. So it's like privacy's on our minds all the time. Uh, but specific to libraries, what privacy issues are, are facing libraries today? Uh, well, the big shift that has to happen in, in thinking around privacy in libraries, it's not just about government surveillance. Certainly government surveillance is an issue. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is, is that technology has taken a lot of um, ability to address that issue out of the hands of librarians because we now know that surveillance is occurring upstream on the internet, outside of the library. Um, there's 
less demand for the paper records that frankly don't exist anymore about somebody's circulation, uh, uh, circulation records of, uh, uh, of library books and things like that. The real issue, uh, actually there's two real issues today. One is, is the outsourcing of library resources and services to third-party vendors. These are parties who are, don't have the same ethical or even legal obligations to protect a patron's privacy, as libraries and librarians do. Um, they, under U.S. law, they're free to use data that comes into their hands in the way any way they wish. Um, and so we have to be really thoughtful as a library community uh, about engaging with these vendors uh, in a way that assures that patron privacy is protected. That may mean developing uh, a model contract language to make sure that control of data remains in the hands of the library or that the vendor doesn't have the right to sell or use or share that data with another third party um, down the road. Uh, the library privacy checklist that were developed last year and addressed this issue in part. But the second issue that is facing libraries as well is the library's own use of data. You know, technology has expanded the ability to collect uh, data, monitor activity in the library, um, keep track of what people are doing, and keep that information for a long time. And libraries themselves are increasingly tempted to use that data for marketing purposes, for improvement of services. And there has to be a thoughtful balance between doing that, those activities, and infringing on our patrons' right to privacy. Um, is it right to use marketing tools in such a way that you actually create maps that identify down to the household uh, with street addresses um, how many books somebody has borrowed and what their income is? Because there's actually tools that will match household income to a library card holder's record so that you can see that. And so we have to really think about these issues because when you start doing that kind of activity, when you start putting those records together, there's a real risk that you'll infringe on the, uh, on the privacy rights that uh, are necessary to enable library users to feel like they're free to read without having someone over looking over their shoulder. Deborah, thanks so much for uh, speaking with Dewey Despo today. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Global Library Event of the Year, the ALA Annual Conference and Exhibition, is coming up fast. June 22nd to June 27th fast here in Chicago. And I hope you're ready because we have an absolutely spectacular set of programs lined up this year. Thousands of scheduled programs, forums, and panels, an exhibit hall packed with vendors showcasing the latest in technology, publishing, there's books everywhere, and much more. And we have a really awesome set of speakers this year, including Hillary Rodham Clinton, Sarah Jessica Parker, Bill Nye the Science Guy, Nikki Giovanni, Gene Yang, Colson Whitehead, and so many more. It's really, it's extravagant this year. Uh, you can find much more info about the 2017 ALA Annual Conference Exhibition and register at alaannual.org. The right to be forgotten is a controversial topic that rides both sides of the privacy protection issue. Its proponents insist that the measure ensures a greater sense of privacy by allowing individuals to have certain web pages removed from search engines that contain personal information that they might not want out there. Now, its critics maintain that the right to be forgotten is tantamount to censorship and the rewriting of history. Jim Neal, university librarian emeritus at Columbia University and president-elect of the American Library Association, sits on the latter side of that conversation. I spoke with him via phone about it all. Hey, we're here with Jim Neal. Jim, thanks so much for joining the Dewey Decimal Podcast. We really, uh, it's great to have you here. Glad to be here. Thank you, Phil. Great. Now, we're, uh, we're going to be talking today about the right to be forgotten. And um, for some of our listeners that might not be familiar with uh, with this measure, um, can you can you just tell them, give them a bit of background? What is exactly the right to be forgotten? Well, I think the right to be forgotten has a long history. I think even in the pre-digital uh, arena, people were concerned what about the information that was circulating about them um, in books and journals, magazines, newspapers, uh, radio broadcasts, and so there there is a legal and policy history to the right to be forgotten. But as more and more information became available uh, over the web, uh, countries began to look at privacy issues 
related to information circulating uh, about individuals. And I sort of, if I look back in history, uh, I sort of put a, uh, a, a mark on 1995 when uh, the European Union adopted uh, what they called the European Data Protection Directive. And it was really a first omnibus effort to look at the, um, the issues around the processing of personal data uh, through electronic means. And as a result, I think there has been a sort of a 20-year history of, of trying to understand how to protect the privacy of individuals uh, in the electronic environment. Uh, the right to be forgotten is, is, is an expression uh, of that concern. As I look for a definition of what we're really talking about, uh, I find the effort here in New York State this past spring, uh, an initiative uh, to bring a bill uh, in front of the state legislature, the definition there I found to be most useful, and I'll just read it. Uh, it's to remove information that is, and this is a quote, inaccurate, irrelevant, inadequate, or excessive, that is no longer material to current public debate or discourse, and is causing demonstrable harm to the individual. Um, I find that to be broad uh, and to be a, a real slippery slope. In the name of protecting privacy, I think we're putting a lot of other important values and constitutional rights at risk. Uh, we have seen the European Union adopt a formal uh, right-to-be-forgotten policy, and they are now working to not only make this uh, applicable within the uh, European Union countries, but also to search engines that uh, are, are making information available on a global scale. Uh, so they uh, reach out to Google and others to, to try to enforce that directive. We've also seen some initiatives in uh, Latin American countries, uh, most particularly probably um, um, Argentina. And uh, so it's, it's beginning to have a broader international conversation. The challenge for us in the United States, of course, is that we have uh, constitutionally based freedom of speech and uh, access to information is obviously is a very important value in this country. And uh, is the right to be forgotten uh, really more about uh, the right to be delisted, the right to obscurity, the right to erasure, uh, the right to rewrite history? And I think we're all concerned with the integrity of the historical record. Uh, but for me, the, the more core, uh, core issue is what is the conflict that it creates? What, how does it undermine uh, freedom of expression and access to information? And I think the, that's sort of the core debate which characterizes and um, uh, colors the, uh, uh, the conversations around uh, the right to be forgotten. So it's basically a, 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 a practice uh, covered in law and policy that would allow an individual to request certain information to be removed from the online public record for the reasons I, I outlined from the New York Initiative. Yeah, you, you mentioned this this core debate, and that seems to be like there's this divide in thinking about the right to be forgotten. And you have some people who view it as, as increasing an individual's privacy by allowing them to have control over what's searchable online. But on the flip side, as you mentioned, uh, it, it can be seen as censorship and stifling this freedom of information. And you, you sit on this, the latter side of the argument. Can you uh, explain that a bit more as to, as to um, how it, it could, could be viewed as censorship? Yeah. So I, so I see it as a massive slippery slope. I understand and support the issues around protecting privacy. Uh, and I, 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 I think that there are other legal remedies for dealing with things like revenge porn or uh, the privacy of minors. I think we have the ability within our legal structure to enforce current or other needed laws uh, to protect those areas of concern uh, in terms of information available um, over the web. Uh, but I think it's a massive slippery slope. Um, I think there is the risk of significant uh, what I'll call peripheral damage. Uh, and unintended but serious repercussions for research, uh, for historical integrity, uh, for public access to information. 
Um, I, I am concerned that it uh, ultimately creates a, a new digital divide uh, with wealth and political power being able to manipulate the laws to the advantages of, of individuals and, and corporations. Um, I think we're, we're really facing desperate challenges in the capture and preservation of born digital content. Um, massive amounts of electronic information disappears from the public record, from public access and usability every second of every day. Uh, my fear is that the right to be forgotten uh, is another nail uh, in this coffin, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, data about us is created, it's shared, it's collected, it's analyzed, it's processed at a somewhat unprecedented scale. Um, should network search engines um, be legally obligated uh, to delete or to hide or anonymize information at the request of the user. For me, this is an affront to principles of expression and access, free expression and access, and I think ultimately it may be unworkable um, as a technical measure. So I think we've got um, risks to constitutionally based values and um, laws in this country. Um, I think we have risks to research and historical integrity. And I think we have the uh, risk of abuse of this policy by those who have the wealth and political power uh, to influence the decisions about what gets kept and what gets deleted from the online record. Um, I think there's also, although this has not been aggressively teased out, I think there's also some intersection potentially with intellectual property, copyright law, um, those who create information uh, basically own that information, and if others can make a decision to take it down and remove it, uh, is that a violation of their of their uh, copyright? Uh, that's not been well played out, but I think it's uh, it's of uh, it's of significant interest to me as well. Yeah, it's um, you, you mentioned kind of the, um, the the ephemeral nature of some of the data that's that's out there, um, and it seems to me like um, one of the problems that I think exists with right to be forgotten is just it seems like the technical challenges like how how is it regulated um, are you keeping ongoing tabs upon on each individual um, who might request something be removed and and I guess this is a question I have for you is um, the, these European and Latin American countries that have enabled or enabled right to be forgotten laws how do they do they um, have how do they control overseas servers well, basically, they're directing the requests for removal uh, to the search engines. Mm. Um, so Google receives, you know, millions of requests to take down information. Uh, a certain percentage of those are uh, approved and implemented, uh, but many are still under consideration. Um, and that means that they basically have to be done on a on a case-by-case -case basis. Now, there's some really interesting work going on in Europe. Um, there's an organization, CISPA, C-I-S-P-A, and several universities um, that are looking at a product, uh, maybe a framework is a better word, um, called Oblivion, which is an automated process to support the right to be forgotten. Uh, it's basically um, artificial intelligence-based effort, so it becomes sort of a scalable thing and a privacy-preserving thing, um, but that's still in development, still being tested, and uh, whether the uh, artificial intelligence approach uh, can achieve the results that are, 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 are needed to deal with the volume of requests that are coming forward, and as the, as the laws expand around the world, uh, to keep up with the uh, with the growth that can be predicted, so there are serious technical issues. Um, I think the um, the search uh, engine companies are wrestling through this, but we're seeing some uh, very interesting technical uh, development at some universities and uh, technology centers around the world. 
Yeah. Um, now, you'd mentioned that there are you know, several European countries and Latin American countries. They have passed this measure, but there was that attempt in New York um, to pass a, a similar right to be forgotten bill a few years ago, and that failed. Um, now, why do yeah. you think that um, that these other countries were more apt to adopt this measure uh, as opposed to here in the U.S.? Is there a difference in mindset uh, or perspective about privacy? Yes, I, I think we're seeing a, a, a tremendous diversity around the world in how people view um, freedom of expression and privacy. Um, so I think there are uh, conflicts in laws and legal traditions, um, and I think that explains why we're seeing movement in Europe and not in the U.S., for example. I think there's conflicts in what I would call core values and cultural norms, um, and I think because uh, free speech is constitutionally based in the United States. Uh, it tends to rise to the top, although I think people are becoming much more sensitive to issues of privacy uh, under the impact of security measures by, the, by governments, um, as well as uh, concerns about the recent legislation to enable the, uh, uh, the uh, sale of uh, our searching records uh, to, uh, to corporate interests. So I think privacy is raised is being raised in visibility, but it still becomes in this country particularly uh, in conflict with the core value of, of freedom of expression. I think there are sort of the conflicts of the interests of the individuals and the interests of society. Uh, what is our public purpose? Um, and I think we're I think there's a, a difference around the world in whether the individual is at the center of protection in the legal system or whether society is in the center. And I think we're seeing some of that that conflict being played out um, in the right to be forgotten legislation. And there, you know, we're not quite sure how do we achieve a viable balance between freedom of expression and personal privacy. And I think in some parts of the world they 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 come down on the side of privacy. Uh, in this country, up to now at least, we've come down on the side of freedom of, of expression. But that doesn't mean that people are not interested in issues of privacy. Um, I think that there are other strategies, other legislative initiatives, other legal remedies that can be used in this country um, other than the right to be forgotten legislation that would protect people and their privacy uh, without undermining freedom of expression. Do you see any type of legislation or measure, uh, right to be forgotten measure, eventually passing in the U.S.? And if so, what would it would it have to change? Um, I to don't think I don't think it would happen at the national level. I'd be very surprised. I think we're seeing some initiatives at the state level, um, and although that has passed, that has not passed in in any cases. Um, I think there's a um, there's a thing called um, erasure button laws. Um, we, there were initiatives early on in Illinois and New Jersey. Um, but again, I think we found other legal remedies to deal with protection of minors and uh, issues of uh, like revenge uh, porn. Um, I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's a real challenge, I think, particularly for the, those of us in the library community who, who sort of advance these values and you know privacy and intellectual freedom are core values for us and when these values come into conflict or these values seem to work against each other uh, it creates a, a very interesting and very challenging uh, uh, suite of issues for us to work through and my history of, of working with the freedom to read foundation uh, which deals with issues of privacy, but ultimately is focused on issues of censorship and issues of freedom of expression, um, I tend to come down uh, on the side of freedom, freedom of expression. I think the integrity and the access to the historical record is absolutely critical. Um, I think uh, freedom of expression, um, and I think they uh, need to be uh, advanced and not eroded by our concerns over privacy. Uh, so I don't think we're going to see initiatives pass 
in the United States or in the individual states. But I do see there will be efforts to focus on particular abuses uh, rather than these more generalized approaches uh, to the right to be forgotten. Yeah, it's definitely it's it's a it's a fascinating topic and one that we're going to be tracking here at Dewey Decimal and American Libraries and ALA uh, in the future. I can tell. Um, Jim, thanks so much for joining Dewey Decimal to discuss right to be forgotten today. We really appreciate it. Okay, very good. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. Thank you. Thank you. Looking for books and resources about privacy issues? ALA has you covered. Head to the ALA store online and grab a copy of. Privacy and Freedom of Information in 21st Century Libraries, published by ALA Tech Source, or perhaps Privacy and Confidentiality Issues, a guide for libraries and their lawyers, published by ALA Editions. You can also find a plethora of goods from buttons and bookmarks to posters and resource guides to help your library celebrate Choose Privacy Week, which is held the first week of May each year. You can find it all at alastore.ala.org. What can a library do if it wants to do more to help safeguard its patrons' privacy? It can be a daunting task at first. Where to begin? What do you need? Who can you talk to for guidance? The Library Freedom Project answers that call. The brainchild of librarian Allison Macrina, the project teaches librarians about surveillance threats, privacy rights, and digital tools they can use to thwart surveillance. Dewey Decibel contributor Ann Ford spoke with Allison about the project, its genesis, and how it helps libraries increase security. Can you um, describe what the Library Freedom Project is exactly for someone who doesn't know a thing about it? Well, um, our mission is to make real the promise of intellectual freedom in libraries. And we do that in a few different ways, but like generally speaking, bringing practical privacy tools into libraries and into their local communities through librarians. And how did it come to be? Well, I was working as a librarian outside of Boston uh, mm -hmm. when, like, the Snowden summer happened. And, you know, that all the revelations about NSA and FBI and local police mass surveillance made me start thinking about, like, what it meant to be a librarian and what it meant to have a professional value of privacy mm -hmm. um, in a world where you know, the, the the potential for collection is so massive and, you know, all, we have all these adversaries who are collecting it and storing it. So also at the same time, I started hearing from um, patrons in my community who for the first time had questions about their privacy. So like Snowden, I think, was so big, you know, that everybody was kind of thinking about it. So that really catalyzed me, um, you know, thinking about ways to, uh, work directly with patrons and, you know, what to install on computers and what to teach and that sort of thing. Why do you think it is that you felt so passionately about this subject that you actually started the Library Freedom Project? Because I can imagine a lot of people, you know, kind of thinking, oh, man, somebody should do something about that. And right. kind of, yeah. I think that, like, one of the things that was really, like, the, the Snowden thing was so big that it, it really just, like, had a very strong impact on me. Like, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was reading everything there was to see. So, like, just kind of, like, from a personal, like, activist thing, it was just one of those things that really got me. But also, as a librarian, um, you know, the people who are most impacted by, by this kind of overbroad government surveillance and corporate, too, are the same people who we see in libraries every day, some of the people who use us the most, um, immigrants, and, um, you know, folks who don't have their own internet connection. So lots of poor folks and working people. And so I think it was this really interesting thing for me, like a light bulb went off. I was like, oh, it's, it's the perfect combination of our professional values and the people who come into our buildings every day and what matters to them. And what's the nitty gritty of what you guys do? So mostly it's um, like visiting libraries doing kind of professional development training for librarians. So um, usually splitting it kind of categorically, you know, here's here's how privacy fits into our professional values. Here's what we know about um, who the adversaries are, what they're capable of, and who they go after. Um, then there's usually some component about our rights and the law, you know, Fourth Amendment, sometimes even down to, like, local state privacy stuff, depending on whether it's 
just Library Freedom Project or whether we're able to bring somebody from the local ACLU affiliate. So mm -hmm. I didn't mention earlier, but one of the things I did when I got started was I connected to my, at the time, my local ACLU, which is the ACLU of Massachusetts, which is a, among the ACLUs of the country, a really phenomenal one. Um, they have a pretty sizable staff. And because Massachusetts is a fairly progressive place, they're not saddled with the kind of like, you know, basic reproductive justice issues that, for example, like the Arkansas ACLU mm -hmm. would be. So the ACLU Massachusetts gets to focus on uh, surveillance and um, a lot of um, police brutality and police militarization and, and um, fighting prisons. Um, so uh, they, um, so I, I have a good friend and colleague, Cade Crawford, who works at the Massachusetts ACLU on the Technology for Liberty Project, which is like, you know, one of the most like incredible encompassing um, research initiatives to figure out like what surveillance exists across the country, what the police use, all kinds of things. So I had a really good partner, you know, um, and starting with ACLU Massachusetts, we began bringing in uh, whichever state ACLU, you know, wherever we travel to, um, if they're available. So that adds a, a depth of, um, you know, exactly what's happening in the court with regard to the law and policy and all these great things that we need to know about. And then some really, um, like, close-to-home things, like what to do if you get a government information request, what to do if you get a warrant, you know, mm -hmm. um, or, like, an NSL, which, like, probably won't happen, but if it does, you probably want to know what to do. And also, it's of uh, the sort of thing that's of concern for libraries. I mean, libraries have gotten national security letters before. Um so then the third part of it is, uh, of the workshops is, um, you know, technical tools, some of them that go on library computers, some of them that you want to integrate into instruction in some way, or sometimes a little bit of both, or like some things that you should just be doing. And, you know, maybe it's not really clear how it fits into a library environment yet, but you should know about it as a, you know, a, a person on the internet. Um, and then some other stuff we throw in there, how to teach classes and that sort of thing. But that's like the basics, you know, um, that we do over and over again. <laughs> and is that mostly in New England or do you guys go across the United States? No, now, um, now we're going all over the place. Um, I was really fortunate to be a uh, recipient of the Knight Foundation's News Challenge on libraries. In, um, uh, we were awarded in 20 early 2015 and you know it it made it possible to go to libraries all over the country so you know we've been um still concentrated in parts of the country where budgets tend to be a little bit more flush um we have the sliding scale but even just like having the staffing to take some time for professional development is not something that's available to all libraries equally you know we try to mitigate that as much as possible but um yeah, every, everyone who will who wants us to come, we very rarely see no. So let's get a little exhausting. <laughs> Going to the UK and Canada too, and and um, uh, Ireland. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of libraries interested in learning about protecting their patrons' privacy. It's cool. Wow, is that something that has increased since last year's presidential election? Have you seen any kind of uptick? Definitely. Uh, yeah, like it was already um, a pretty intense, uh, you know, high demand right after the election. Like there was a huge burst and, and a lot of folks um, I heard from a lot of people directly impacted um, people in immigrant communities um, in particular. Um and and from parts of the country that I hadn't really heard from so much, like, uh, you know, a, a few people along the border, for example. Um, but then even other people, the one thing I heard most often was they were like, I didn't get why it was so important before. And now it feels like things have really substantially changed because they have. Um, mm -hmm. So I think the, the urgency is certainly more than ever. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that, about what what's changed so substantially? Well, I mean, you know, uh, where to even begin? You know, I think one thing that I spent a great deal of time thinking about is what um, what what radical changes we're going to see to 
the Department of Justice under Jeff Sessions. I mean, this is a man who's an, an admitted, avowed <laughs> uh, racist. You know, the, the things that he said, I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable to see that a, that a person like him is in such a position of power, and he's already gotten to work dismantling the even very small reforms that the Obama administration made. You know, what, where else do you want to go? It's like <laughs> we have an administration. It's like it's like I try to talk about it and my brain starts spinning. It's just naked white nationalists and, and CEOs of the biggest corporations in the world. I mean, we are in a, a bad place and, and we have to really our the, the future for libraries and for democracy and all these all these things that feels even very strange to say out loud, you know, mm-hmm. uh, is bound up in our ability to protect these things. And I, and I see libraries as a really fundamental piece of that. I mean, we have um, the practical realization of like free speech and, uh, you know, and, and the fourth amendment too, really privacy, you know, the, the library can be a space that really protects these things um, and, and protects the kind of people who need to do the work to, to move us forward, you know? You mentioned you used the word a couple times already that I'm really curious about. You referred to adversaries. Mm-hmm. And, like, who are you talking about when you say that? Are you thinking about specific agencies or companies or what? I think that, like, broadly speaking, you know, um, the Internet is a place that is controlled by um, U.S. bureaucracies, um, U- U.S. law enforcement, and I mean literally, like the the very infrastructure, the the whole the way that I can is is um, you know uh, mapped out, and who um, sorry sorry what's I can? I can is the is the institution that um, I forget what the acronym stands for, of course, right now, but it's the institution that um, uh, gives out domain names, basically, so like oh, okay. .edu and and you know um, runs like top level domains dot com and all these um and so uh you know they the that very infrastructure is uh is like a a mix of of u.s um bureaucratic agencies some of them are known as like the, the department of energy um it's accountable to u.s law enforcement and also u.s private companies and then the software that we all use is all private companies you know google facebook yahoo microsoft apple um have uh you know a, a huge amount of information uh about our lives it, they know when we wake up they know every everyone we communicate with everything that we look for you know they it's um if we want the internet to be a, to be democratic we have to radically rethink um the the internal structures of it um who owns it and you know it's one reason to um to support free and open source software because free and open source software is is the only alternative to um, a totally corporate controlled internet. It doesn't help so much with the U.S. governance structure, um, mm-hmm. but it can help with the Googles and the Facebooks and all this. Uh, but so anyway, they have all this information about us. They have the ability to use it um, to send us to prison if they want to. You know, the, the subpoena power that... Uh, that the U.S. government has and, um, you know, who we've seen it used against, um, is tremendous. And, and, you know, what that means in an increasingly authoritarian political climate, um, you know, so w- w- where do you begin with the adversaries really? And, and it's really frightening when you start thinking about it. And obviously I get on this like ramble of like all these terrible entities, but, th- but it is true that we can do something about it. And it really, um, it really makes a difference to make even a few small changes in your life, you know, of, of the services you choose to use, um, the way you communicate, um, you know, a lot of it can be cumbersome, but the starting points are not, and it really can um, give us back some of the, the personal freedom, the autonomy that a lot of these companies and different entities have kind of taken away from us by controlling our data. This seems like a great time to ask you what the Tor Project is. Sure. Uh, the Tor Project is a nonprofit and kind of uh, difficult to define extended community of developers all over the world 
who um, make uh, free speech and privacy enhancing software. Um, the main piece of software uh, that people kind of know the Tor project for is the Tor browser. Tor, the network, is the is the thing that kind of lives in the background and makes the whole thing operate. But most people use Tor browser, which is uh, a web browser. It's just like other web browsers you, you've used before, Firefox or Chrome or Safari or whatever. Um, the fundamental differences are that uh, Tor routes all of the traffic. Tor browser routes all the traffic through the Tor network, meaning that your communication, where your um, uh, destination points and your originating points are, are anonymous. And then the other side of it is that um, we we take the Firefox browser and plug up all the different privacy holes that the Firefox browser has. Mm -hmm. And so then you get this total um, application that is a really safe way to use the web, to visit websites. So I assume you recommend that a library should consider installing this on its computers that patrons use. Yeah, totally. You know, it's... um. Sometimes it's not the right first thing for folks to start with. Some libraries, um, all libraries really would do really well to just have um, a good uh, class on like really simple security passwords and software updates and, you know, some, some best practices for avoiding malware. Like everyone needs that and it doesn't really exist other than in libraries. Um, but Tor Browser is, is uh, you know, something that um, I've seen a, a number of libraries, uh, they put it on the computers. It's not the default browser. You can't even make it that, um, but I wouldn't recommend it if you could. And then you just have some kind of signs or, you know, some mechanism for communicating with your patrons where you say, um, you know, this library cares about your privacy. This is a web browser uh, where you can access websites without those websites knowing the other sites that you visit and without, you know, anyone else, you know, observing where you're going. Um, one use case that resonates very well with people is, you know, everybody hates it when they Google something or if they have some conversation in email and then suddenly they see ads for that thing everywhere. Someone was just telling me how she like had a Gmail fight with her boyfriend and then there were all these ads for like divorce, divorce lawyers. And like, what is happening? Like, what, what is, um, it's invasive and terrible. And if you use Tor browser, those websites don't know other sites that you visit. So they don't know who you are. So they can't really follow you. So I see libraries as a really good place where, where communities can get information about this thing that they wouldn't learn about on their own, probably. Um, and if they have heard anything about it, it's, you know, that it's so difficult um, or it's just like scary thing or the government's going to put you on a list. Um, and if the library has it, uh, it's it's such a, a, a way of building trust, you know, not just mm -hmm. Tor Browser, any of these privacy tools. And that reminds me, so what other, like, what other steps could, like very basic steps should libraries consider taking to safeguard their privacy and the privacy of their patrons? Well, you know, talking about the, the kind of like library internal side of things, one thing that every library should absolutely do is set up strong HTTPS on their websites. Um, you know, HTTP is the, the protocol on the Internet that sends websites back and forth. And the, the websites have, that have the little S on the end, HTTPS, it means that there is a security certificate installed on that website that um, makes all of its uh, communications between, you know, whatever user is making a request of it to the server on the other end, uh, those connections are encrypted. And so that means that, um, you know, anyone who's viewing your library website, whether they're looking for books about divorce or diabetes or, uh, you know, whatever else, um, no one who's observing their network traffic can see what they're looking up. And it's very easy for someone to observe network traffic. I mean, anyone with access to the network can do this. So it's a very simple thing that does a great deal um, for patient privacy. Uh, and it's, it's gotten a lot easier to do in, um, in recent years. There's a project called Let's Encrypt that um, has made it so that websites can get a free 
uh, automatically updating and uh, also free and open source security certificates for their websites. And they even have a little um, uh, setup bot, um, CertBot. If you go to certbot.eff.org and you just tell it the kind of server that you run and it gives you a couple scripts to run. And if you don't know what any of those words mean, the person uh, who runs your website will know what it means. Um, so that's a really important thing for like the library side. As for um, teaching patrons, and I, I see that as in, in many ways kind of more important, like it's super important for us to, to have our own systems um, well secured and taken care of. Um, but we have to teach people how to use security tools, just like we teach our communities how to use, um, how to look for jobs and how to write resumes and do all these things um, that are a necessary public service. Uh, so the, the simplest tools that everyone should be using, number one, everyone should have strong password, um, strong master password and use a good password manager. Um, you can make a strong master password if you look up something called the diceware method, it's a method where you basically, like, there's a word list, every word has a number, you roll a die, you get a number, and then you make a master password that's like five or six of those words. Um, and it is and it is mathematically strong, but it's um, easier to remember than a jumble of letters, numbers, and symbols. And then you set up a password manager. One password is a good one. And... Uh, use two-factor authentication where wherever, you know, whatever services you find it. Um, you know, software updates are a very important one. That's one that everyone should do, you know, as soon as possible. And then another rather simple one um, is Signal, which is an encrypted texting and calling app that you can use for iPhones, for Android. It has a desktop client for Windows and Mac and Linux. And it works, functions pretty similarly to, um, to iMessage. Like if, you know, people have used, uh, Apple iMessage, you know, in the same way that it keeps your conversations, if you have it on a desktop and on a mobile phone, it syncs them, um, and it has video chat and all that stuff. And it's a good kind of entry point, an easy piece of software that works pretty well, um, and does what it, what it intends to do. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been terrific. Sure. Yeah. Good to talk to you. And I, I should ask too. So, if somebody wants to find out more about the Library Freedom Project, what should they do? They can go to uh, libraryfreedomproject.org, and uh, if they have any questions, anything that's not on the website, they can contact me, and my email is on the site. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Thanks again to Deborah Caldwell Stone, Jim Neal, and Allison McCrina for joining us this month. Tune in next month as uh, we get all meta and look at libraries and librarians who have embraced podcasting. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Stop by, tell us how we're doing and what you'd like to hear from us. We're always looking for show ideas. iTunes users, give us a review if you can. Your words and rating, they uh, help us in the rankings and allow us to reach more ears. If you have any questions, shoot me an email at deweydecimal.ala.org. I promise you, I'll get back to you. Until next month, I'm Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries Magazine, and this is the Dewey Decimal Podcast. The, the future for libraries and for democracy and all these all these things that feels even very strange to say out loud, you know, mm -hmm. uh, is bound up in our ability to protect these things. And I and I see libraries as a really fundamental piece of that. Mm -hmm.